It is good to be in the house of the Lord. It is good to get back into VBS and have it. It's because of COVID and other things. It's just been messed up. And so we're looking forward to having uh, the children here this week, teaching them about Jesus and celebrating his name. We are in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 21. Got some introductory comments just to bring us up to date to remind us. As Jesus began his servant on the mound with those beatitudes, those steps to godliness, it starts out, blessed are you. And the point is that as you uh, uh, take on these attributes that Jesus talks about, it draws us closer to God. And as we draw closer to God, we are blessed. And so those, if I, if I summarize them down, uh, it comes out to the steps are humility, repentance, discipline, devotion, mercy, holiness, evangelism, and Christ-likeness. Those are the things that Jesus and those words drew us to, to where we become like God. And that is commanded in the Scripture, our today's Scripture, uh, 1 Peter 1, 16 and 17. But it, just as He called you is holy, he is holy, set apart, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And that holy, uh, you can think of, means set apart, set apart from the world, set apart from the way our world operates and to be different, to be like God, to become like him, to be like Christ. And when we do that, we are going to be different from the world. And, and it's a weird dichotomy there because on one hand, they'll criticize us. But on the other hand, those who are not Christians expect us to live like Christians. Silly thing, isn't it? That if we claim to be a Christ follower, if we claim to be Christians, that we would live as Christ taught us to live. They expect it even though they may not agree with it. So that's what Jesus is teaching. And then to make his point, he starts talking about the fulfillment of the law, that he is the fulfillment of the law. His death on the cross fulfilled what the law was intended to do, intended to show us. And so he completed that. And we are to be salt to the world, adding flavor, preserving, and we are to be a beacon of light, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. So Jesus starts out all that, his prologue, to the Sermon on the Mount about how we obtain godliness, those words I lived for, gave out to you, encouraging us that we are to live those out, let Jesus see us by being salt of the earth, by being a light, a beacon. And then he goes on now into the passages. So we're going to read, and I wonder how many have a red letter Bible? Does your Bible have red letter in it? All right. What does that mean? Supposed to be the words that we ascribe that Jesus actually spoke. So we're reading the words of Jesus here. We're going to start at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. It says, You have heard that it was said to people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother and says to his brother Raka 
is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer that you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Wait a minute. I thought Jesus was all sweetness and kindness and mercy. He healed people, right? We, he, he's loving. He cared for the little children, and he is. He's all those things, but Jesus is very serious about God's Word and about living for God. And so as we get into these passages in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, some of them are going to be a little tough because Jesus wanted us to be perfect even as the Father in heaven is perfect, to be holy even as He is holy. And so He starts out with uh, this on the Ten Commandments. It's the Sixth Commandment. A lot of you grew up learning, thou shalt not kill. That was the King James translation of it. And it's not the best translation. It actually is referring to murder. That word in the Hebrew is roshach. You got to do that clear, clearing your throat at the end of it. Roshach. And I'm supposed to start with a flip of the tongue. Uh, if you, anybody had Spanish, you know you have to roll your R's. Well, in the Hebrew word, it was a rashok, and then you clear your throat. That's, that's kind of how you say it. But he starts out with that, with that sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder, being the more accurate translation. And regardless of whether I pronounce it right or not, it means to murder or slay, and it can mean premeditated, or it can mean accidental. Sometimes things happen. Regardless of premeditation or accident, the family of the one who was murdered or killed was allowed to seek vengeance. And they were allowed to come after the one who had done that and take their vengeance and put them to death. And so the ones who are guilty, who premeditatedly killed somebody, would kind of expect people coming after them. They would have probably run and hid. The ones who it was accidental uh, we're in trouble. But God allowed them and God instructed them to set up cities of refuge. And so when somebody committed a crime like this, they could run to one of the cities of refuge. And it wasn't a, just a, uh, a boilerplate thing that they were safe and could never be bothered, never be touched. Once they got into the city of refuge, they were tried and for the crime. They were investigated by the council, by the leaders, by a tribunal to see if it was indeed accidental or if it was intentional or premeditated. If it was accidental, if they were just throwing rocks off a cliff, didn't look to see who was below and it hit and killed somebody, but it was a pure accident. They didn't intend to kill the person. They didn't have anything against that person. It wasn't premeditated. 
they could stay in that city of refuge and live without fear of reprisal, without fear of the family coming for them. They were protected in the city of refuge. If they left the city, went out from its protection, then it was a free game for anybody. And if they caught the person, they could take their vengeance and they would be justified under Old Testament law in doing that. Also, that protection in the city of refuge lasted as long as the high priest that was active at that time was alive. So when they passed, the, the person could leave and, and, and that ruling that, that over their lives was ended. And by then, hopefully the people had forgotten or they were able to go on about their lives. So, so when they're talking about this, it is murder. And it is, murder is that intentional, premeditated killing. And Jesus is talking about that here. And he says that the one who commits that is subject to judgment. And the judgment there, the Greek word is krisis. And it means to come before a tribunal or a court to have their actions investigated. And it is also means there a determination of guilt to see just what the circumstances was and what should be done against them or for them. If they were found guilty, then they weren't allowed to stay in the city of refuge. They were sent out and uh, let fall what may. So that's the word crisis, judgment, that uh, Jesus is talking about there. In this passage, Jesus uses the teaching style that he used often that's really effective is he takes the listener from what the listener knows and is familiar with. All of these people of Jesus' time would have known the Ten Commandments. They would have, it would have been drilled into them. They would have learned them. There were many, many more they learned. So they would have understood the Ten Commandments. So when Jesus starts talking about thou shalt not murder, they knew what he was saying. They knew that law. But Jesus then does as he does, he takes it to a deeper meaning. He takes it really to the real intent of the Old Testament law. And we shared in this uh, last week, and we've been talking about this, the law saves no one. The law cannot prevent you from going to hell. The law does not make you a child of God. The law was intended to show you the sinfulness of your heart to show you the impossibility of you living a perfectly righteous life. And it was designed to point to a Savior, Jesus Christ, when he came. And so that was the law. And Jesus then has taken this. And so, yes, God was serious. Thou shalt not murder. But there's a deeper meaning that Jesus was taking that to. So Jesus has taken the listener to what he knows to that deeper meaning. In Matthew 5, 22, Jesus goes on in that teaching, teaching us that a person who is angry with his brother or sister without reason is subject to judgment. And so Jesus has taken it from an action to an attitude. Most of us here, most of the people in that day could say, well, I haven't ever murdered anybody. I've kept the law. 
And God is teaching, yes, that's the beginning of it. I'm glad you haven't killed anybody. I have glad you haven't murdered anybody. But do you have hatred in your heart? Do you have this attitude towards others? And Jesus is saying that that reserves the same judgment is that attitude towards another. Jesus goes on to expound upon that where he says, if one calls his brother or sister Raka, then they are subject to come before the tribal council for punishment. That Raka kind of means empty-headed. It, uh, it's an Aramaic word that was used and it, it, it just means doesn't have any sense. They don't think right. They're they're just stupid would be a word we'd use today. Empty-headed, senseless, or stupid. And so Jesus is saying, if that's your attitude of contempt towards someone, then you're guilty of breaking the sixth commandment and you stand liable to be judged for that. But he doesn't stop there. He goes and adds it on even more. Then he goes on to say that if you say your brother or sister is a fool, then you stand to face the fires of hell. Hell being Gehenna that is pointing to. So this is this really deep and like I said, really difficult teachings of Jesus Christ. He's very serious. He, he, he established for us in the passages before that no jot or tittle, if you remember we talked about that, of the law would pass away before the end times when he sets things right. It's still valid. It's still important. And he's taken that deeper to say that that involves our attitudes, what we think. And we can often, we can control our actions. You may have had it in a time that you Think you might, if you were close enough to a person, take them by the throat and just strangle them. You were so angry with them. Or in some other way, if under the right circumstances, you might see yourself taking that kind of a violent act, but we hold back, thank goodness. But typically we hold back because we're afraid of the punishment. We don't want to be hauled off to jail. We don't want to have to face the death penalty. It is a deterrent that we would be avoiding, but that doesn't take care of the attitude. We can still harbor that attitude of hatred towards somebody else. Whenever it says calling somebody a fool, that's different than raka. Raka means empty-headed, stupid, just not very bright, whereas calling someone a fool means they are morally worthless, that there's just no value in them and so perhaps they would think they should die. And that is not our place to make those kind of judgments. God teaches us to judge from right and wrong, but, but the judgment Jesus proclaims against is us making that determination as somebody is not worthy to live, as somebody is not worthy of love. We condemn them. We are damning towards them. And we do not have that standing that we can do that. That is God and God alone. 
God, the righteous creator of the universe who is perfect and there is no darkness in him, Jesus Christ who never sinned while he was on earth, they are the ones who have the right to judge to that level. They are perfect and in that perfection, they can judge whether somebody should go to heaven or hell. That is not our place. And so we can come under uh, an under judgment by taking that. In fact, this word fool, the Greek word for that is moros. Sounds a lot like moron, doesn't it? That that's what it's saying about people. That's the attitude. This level of hatred is very severe. It's a level of judgment that Jesus commands. And in that, we are saying that that person is worthy of eternal and complete condemnation. And again, we don't have that right. Only God holds that. Therapists have decided there are 12 types of anger. I've got the names on a slide up here for you to look as I talk about them. The first one they, they talk about is assertive anger. And this is the kind of anger that drives you to seek out what is right and try to make things right. It is, it, it is a positive change in that respect. So that's assertive anger. The next is behavioral anger. This is the physical reaction that can be expressed through violence towards someone. Chronic anger is that continuous low-level feeling of anger, resentment, irritability, and frustration. Not because a person has necessarily done anything, you just don't like the way they look. You just don't like what kind of people they are. You just uh, have that constant anger against them uh, because they're alive and taking up breathing space that you think is better served. That's chronic anger. Then there's destructive anger, and this is an extension to a greater degree of behavioral anger, and it can involve verbal or physical actions designed to hurt another person. It is that outward expression. One way we could divide these 12 is an external or an internal type of behavior. Destructive anger would be external in that it seeks to hurt others. Judgmental anger is that reaction of a perceived slight. You know, so much of what we react on is where we think somebody's doing something to us. We think they've slighted us. We think they've sullied our name, but it isn't actually so. But that perception becomes reality to us. That perception is what drives us. And in judgmental anger, it is reacting to that perceived uh, behavior towards us. And it can be verbal or physical. And then there is overwhelmed anger. And this is a suppressed anger that's held within, but it becomes very damaging to the angry person. That's when we are angry about things, or angry about people, and we just kind of pack it down. We know we can't express it. We know we shouldn't show that anger. We, we ought to act loving, and so we suppress it. We repress it within us, but the anger is there, and that anger is damaging to our psyche. It hurts us, and especially when we repress it, and it's not shown, it doesn't hurt the other person. They may not even know we're angry at them. 
but it eats us alive. And so that is that overwhelming anger, and it tends to come out when that last straw, as we talk about, is broken. And we come out and we lash out, and it does cause problems in. It's evidenced as a sudden snap of irritability and resentment after that long period of regression. Just one day, things pile up and we're overwhelmed and it burst forth onto other people. Then one that comes, the next one is passive-aggressive anger. Passive-aggressive is that person who acts like things are okay. They act like they're going along. They act like they're in agreement with you, but they do not do as you've asked, or they do not follow the teaching or the leading. And so they, they are passively aggressive in that they just don't do what you're asking them. That's a, that's a parent to a child. It, it's different relationships where you don't necessarily have authority over a person, but you're trying to lead them. So they may act like everything you're saying they agree with, but in their actions, they resist. They passively resist what's going on. Then there is retaliatory anger, and that's driven by a need for revenge against a perceived hurt. It seeks as a way to destroy others, and it can be through an overt action, or it can be through gossip, through running down their reputation for saying untrue statements about them, or only highlighting uh, negative appearing stuff, but it is an act to destroy them, to reduce their, uh, the way they are perceived by other people, to have other people, to initiate an anger in other people by the way your picture of them is colored. That's retaliation. It isn't always a physical active need. It can be just through that gossip and innuendo. Self-abusive anger is where we stay angry at something and again it eats us up and, and it causes low self-esteem within us, usually again from a perceived, uh, and it tends to relate to shame. We start feeling shame for who we are, for what we've done. Silent anger, bottling up one's feelings. We may think we're hiding our anger but other people can pick it up. You can know something's going on with someone. You may not know what it is, they may not say, but you know something's not right. Then of course there's verbal anger. That is some of the greatest abuse that takes place today. Husbands to wives and, and other family members to each other, employers to employees and vice versa, may never raise a hand towards the person but they can be verbally abusive. Parents have to be so careful about that towards our children. We need to correct them. We need to guide them in how they should live, but not by saying abusive terms. One of the things, a, a slide example, that I used to try to practice with my children is we all know children can do stupid stuff. They just aren't thinking. And I would always try to say, you're not stupid, but you did something stupid. 
They were intelligent, they knew better. If they'd thought it through, they wouldn't have done it. But you can say that another way and you can run them down. You can tell them you wish they'd never been born or you resent, they get the resentment that you're having to take care of them. And it just is a, is a, uh, a flow of abusive language towards someone. And typically, after we do that, we regret it because it just welled up and it, it overflowed and washed over them. We don't really mean it. We love our children. We love our brother or sister. And we didn't really, we don't really think they're worthless or stupid. It just blew up. And we regret that afterwards. And then, of course, volatile anger, which is that very destructive, and it includes shouting, yelling, throwing things, physical aggression. These are all ways that anger reveals itself. And we know about road rage. We know uh, about seeking re revenge in a sense. I've always been intrigued with someone who uh, believes I've cut them off in traffic, thus delaying them from getting somewhere. They were in such a hurry, they just couldn't wait. And then I inadvertently pulled over in front of them to where they couldn't do it. But for some reason, those who are in such a hurry now have time to follow behind me, to come alongside, to let me know their anger and disgust with me. And I often think, I, I thought you were in a hurry, but they have time to be able to do that. Anger takes those many forms, and anger demonstrates what's in the heart. Anger shows what's really driving us. Anger is revealed. We can try to repress it, but, but others can see it and sense, and sense it and know it. And Jesus is saying here that it's wrong. And he says it's wrong in very harsh terms. Using raka to talk about someone as empty-headed or stupid is worthy of, the, of having to face judgment. Calling somebody a fool, morally corrupt, is in, puts us in danger of the fires of hell. And so Jesus is teaching us that, that these are very important attitudes that we need to resolve in our life. And it can be dealt with by yielding our expectations to God by understanding we are His child under His care and protection, and that He doesn't let anything come our way that He will not help us with, help us through. I'm not saying He causes these things on you, but by using them, He can make you stronger. He can help you deal with it. And sometimes it takes professional help. It takes sitting down with someone talking through what is causing you such anger, helping you to discover what is driving you, what is uh, causing you to feel this way towards people, often irrational, often without good meaning. And Jesus concludes this section by teaching that when there is this conflict with fellow man, it impacts our worship. He's saying, when you come to the altar, of course, this was before Christ was crucified, so the, the Jewish people were practicing their sacrifices. And it's teaching that when you come to the altar, you're giving that, that, 
sacrifice to cover your sins, to please Almighty God, asking for His mercy and grace by your taking this step of worship. And He's saying, leave it there and go get straightened out. He talks at length in Matthew chapter 18 about how to resolve conflicts with each other. The first step is to, if you have a conflict, is go and talk to two or three and share. And that is not for the purpose of getting a yes group that says, oh, you're right, you were, you were wrong, they're, they're, uh, they did you dirty. You should have friends that when you go to them with a problem, say, Wes, you got the problem. They didn't do anything wrong. Wes, you're the one with the wrong attitude. You need to search your heart. Or if it's a valid case, then they'll say, yes, you're right in what happened. So Jesus says, start there. Then he says, take it to the elders. And the whole point of each of these steps is that it's not to garner support, it's so that that other group can see where the real error is and if it lies within us, can encourage us to change, can encourage us to look at it, or if it is justified, then the group brings that correction and finally, Jesus says you take it to the church if it can't be resolved. So. I encourage you to read Matthew 18. Jesus is very specific about how to deal with conflict, and it starts with communication. Thou shalt not commit murder. Murder is very destructive to the victim and to the perpetrator. Actual murder, taking someone's life, uh, creates havoc. Uh, Families are, are... divided, they face loss. If it was a breadwinner, then they struggle then to replace that. But anger is just as destructive. Anger can keep us from moving forward in our life with Christ. It can trap us. It can hold us there. And if we don't get it resolved, it eats us alive and it makes us sour people. It can be repressed. It can be manipulated to be released at different times and in different ways, choosing to inflict damage to body, reputation, or relationships. It's a powerful motivator. And Jesus is teaching here that it's good that you haven't murdered anyone, but it's not good if you harbor hate towards someone towards people that look differently, towards people that act differently, towards people that think differently or do differently, harboring that hate. If we're to have effective relationships in our family and our churches, anger must be yielded to Christ. Asking Him regularly to to heal us, to teach us, to empower us to move forward, to to handle that that is driving us so. It does not represent Jesus Christ when we have that angry attitude. And so when we become a follower of Jesus Christ, 
we yield our rights to Him. I surrender all is that hymn that we sing. And yet we don't. We, we may come forward. We accept Christ as Savior. We follow through baptism. We attend to the church. We give offerings. But we hold on to that one right that we just won't relinquish. We hold on with tight fists that which we just won't yield to Him. And Jesus is bidding us Turn it all over to me. Trust me that I will make it better for you than you could ever do. Yielding to Him completely is what Jesus calls us to do. And when we become a follower of Jesus, we need to yield those rights to Him. We need to trust Him that He knows what is best. To trust Him that He knows the healing we need. I've thought, and you may be able to connect to this, there are things in our lives that impact us that happened years and years ago, and some we may not be aware of. My father was sick with cancer, and my mother made the choice, and I'm, I'm not trying to diss on her, to not tell us children about it. I didn't know till it was really too late. But children pick up and they know something's going on. Well, I can't go back and correct that. But I have a God who spans all of time. I have a God who is here with me right now, who was with me 60 years ago. He's still in that time. He's still in that place. And I have prayed Lord, you can do what I can't do. You can heal back when I was hurt. And I believe he's done it. He wants to heal us. He wants to make us whole. And he is all times, all places. And so if you have something in you, maybe you don't know what's driving you. Maybe you don't understand your actions of why you behave like you do. You can go and meditate before Him. And He may bring it to mind, but if nothing else, you can say, Father, You know I need healing. You know I need to let go of this. You need, know I need to give forgiveness for a wrong. You're back in time when it happened, Lord. Give me new insight. Whatever it is, God, trust Him to do what He knows needs to be done to make you whole and complete. He wants to do that. He's waiting to do that. But our God, as powerful as He is, does not control you like a marionette with strings. He's waiting for each one of us to come to Him, say, Lord, I'm tired of this battle. I'm tired of this fight. I'm tired of the angst and the turmoil it is inside of me. Heal me, Father. I lay it down. And we probably have to lay it down every day and every moment of the day until He brings that healing. Until He brings us to that place we can say to whomever, I forgive you and I trust my Father to take care of me.
Jesus said, thou shalt not commit murder, that it's still valid. But he went on to say, if you harbor hatred towards a brother or sister, and the Greek there can mean a sibling or it can mean a fellow, fellow believer in Christ. If you're harboring that, Jesus says that you're uh, open to judgment for that attitude. And he wants us to come lay that on the altar and let him heal that pain that we feel through that incident. May you do that. May these words help you with whatever you're dealing with in your life.